Thank you, Joel. And good morning to all. It's good to see all of you here this morning. Uh, I wanted to mention that when uh, Becky was uh, in school, she was uh, part of the ORU women's basketball team. And we used to embarrass her. We would go to her games, and then we, you know, she wouldn't get in the game for a little while, and we would say, put in Becky, put in Becky. <laughs> and her face would get all red, and she'd turn right on there, so. Anyway, she was a good basketball player back in the day. I don't know how she is now. I haven't played her for a while. I also used to tease her that she was better than her brother, who was on my wing. <laughs> and he was a pretty good player, too, so. This morning... I want to touch on a theme, live the truth, not your truth. I want to read first from Romans chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress truth by their wickedness. And then verse 25 says, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. These and related verses paint a very clear picture of our current culture, don't they? Just see our current culture in these. But since we know these words were written two millennia ago, we also see that this is really nothing new. Humanity has always struggled with truths, small t, and truth, capital T, truth. We struggle with both small t truths and capital T truths because, first of all, we're sinners. But we serve the one who proclaimed that I am the truth. And followers of Christ, we must be very clear about not following our truth, but the truth. We often hear phrases like these in our culture these days. We see things like, live your truth, you do you, follow your heart, or listen to your heart. We see my body, my choice. We see love is love. And you notice how many of these things are focused on me? On the surface, these things sound so reasonable, so nice, so sweet, so friendly, so non-judgmental. But as those who follow the truth and not our own truth, these phrases that are captioned often, captured often in memes like you see on the screen, uh, protest signs, bumper stickers. We must be clear that all this line of thinking is a very bad idea at best or consequentially sinful at worst. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things. Why would we want to follow our heart? That's Disney theology or Oprah theology. That's not the Bible. I'm going to ask you this morning... So if you planned on taking a nap in the next half hour, sorry to disappoint you. But I have here, you wonder why is Bill bringing a bag up here? Well, I've got my, my sermon illustration here. I've got a bag of M&Ms, okay? And I also now have a list of my favorite foods and drinks on the screen. And I want to ask you, how many M&Ms do you think are in this bag? Anyone who care to guess? 273, guess. Anybody else? 117. 117. Anybody else? I'll take one. Huh? 89. Okay, so we got all over the map, right? We got all over the map. So I want to ask you something. Which guess 
of the number of M&Ms comes close to being right, I have it written down. 134. So Joel, you've got yourself a bag of M&Ms. How great you come to church and win a bag of M&Ms. And it's not the, the fix is not in because Joel's an elder. So which one of the list of favorite foods comes closest to being right? Now let me, let me ask this and don't answer out loud because there's a right answer here and I don't want to embarrass anyone. When it comes to truth, is it more like getting the number of M&M or is it more like choosing your favorite food? Think about that for a second before we move on. And again, don't answer it out loud because there's a right answer here. When it comes to absolute truth questions, one of us must be wrong at a bare minimum. Maybe we both are. But one thing that we can never say is that we're both right. The number of M&Ms is a knowable number. I know because I counted them. Like our God is a knowable God. Think about that. Capital T truth conforms to the facts. In this case, the number of M&Ms. The list of favorite foods is subjective truth. And there is such a thing as subjective truth, just not in the way that our culture thinks about it. Subjective meaning what's true for me is true for me and what's true for you is true for you. Favorite foods is just one example. If I say, for example, Brahms chocolate chip cookie dough ice cream is the best ice cream there is. I'm really stating an opinion here, right? Not an absolute truth. Because as we learned a few weeks ago at Bob McWilliams' service, Bob would say that any ice cream from Bluebell is better than any other ice cream. So there's the matter of taste, and I'm not just talking about physical taste. I might like a certain kind of music, and you don't for whatever reason. I may prefer a mountain vacation, and you may like the lake. True for me, but not true for you. And to say that driving on the right side of the road is the law may be true here, but it's not in England. These are subjective truths, and they depend on one's time and place and personal perspective and really personal taste. But the kind of truth we're talking about this morning is very different. There's truth and there's untruth. There's truth and there are lies. We live in a culture that has rejected absolute truth and we're reaping the consequences of it every day I want to show you the first of three video clips this morning that relate to this and these clips are all from a single podcast on relativism and feature apologists uh, Elisa Childers and Greg Kokel has anybody have heard of any of them okay well you're about to be introduced then if you haven't heard of them uh, it's Elisa Childers program I highly recommend any resources from either of these people to help you think through cultural and theological issues of the day effectively. And if you want links or you want more information, email me, text me, call me. I'll have some li- uh, links to this kind of stuff. So let's listen to the first clip that I want to hear this morning. If I'm you know, not exaggerating, I don't think this is an exaggeration to say that our culture has abandoned mm-hmm. the idea of truth. Yeah. Uh, Frank Beckwith and I wrote a book uh, in... Uh, those of the year we got published the year I got married in 1998, so it's been a long time, almost 25 years. And it was called Relativism. That's it. I mean, not a fancy title, but I like the subtitle, Feet Firmly Planted in Midair. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, 
it was appropriate because people who are relativistic in their thinking, that is, they they don't believe in truth or in certain categories of truth, in this case, moral truth is what we were talking about mm-hmm. mostly in that book. Well, they have no foundation. They're just floating around, so to speak. So what do they have to guide them if they're just floating around? All they have to guide them is themselves, themselves and their feelings and and whatever their convictions happen to be at the moment. Mm -hmm. Now, they can't say their convictions are true in any deep sense. All they can say is they're true for them. But all that means is that they believe them. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean there's any further significance to them. You know, it was Oprah Winfrey said at the Academy Awards, you know, live your truth or something like that. Well, that, that, that all that is, is narcissism. Mm. You know, I mean, yeah. really, that's all it amounts to. It's, it's all about me. You do you. Mm-hmm. Or as I saw in one place, it said something like, be your own hero. Right. Well, that's there's a quote actually from the Rachel Hollis book, Girl, Wash Your Face, that I reviewed. And it says in that book, you should be the hero of your own story. Yeah. So this is interesting, though, because what is a hero? A hero is someone we look up to because of some virtue that we want to accomplish. We are drawn to this because these people are above and beyond the standard. Okay, but what this line does is it says, We are the end all. Mm -hmm. This is as high as it gets. And it's not even high or low because there's no reference point. It's just me. Mm -hmm. It's like you do you. It's like two two pronouns and a verb. And it's all Mm self-reflective. So there's there's nothing there but us. Yeah. And 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 uh, uh, people don't think about it that way. They think this means freedom and this means authenticity as if these are noble things. And I don't think Oprah thought about this, but what if the person's truth is racism? Well, think about that. huh? Think about that for a minute. Don't we begin to see the problem that live your own truth can bring? I am not the hero of my own story. I want to live the truth, not my truth. But if it's all relative, then nothing is for sure, even whether we're male or female. And now if this is true, in other words, relativism is true, and that's an interesting conundrum, isn't it? Think about that. We can't know anything unless we feel or think it ourselves, especially these significant things for sure, then you know what? We might as, all, might as well all just get up and go home now. Because the time we spend considering what Jesus All you need to do to see the consequences and practical outworking of our theme this morning is to watch the news or read the news. What's true or right for you is right for you, and what's right for me is right for me. We have people with a straight face asking questions like, what's wrong with our kids? Why are our kids killing each other in school? Why is cheating and lying and stealing such a growing problem? Well, these things are all true. Should I switch to the podium mic, Jerry? Want to stick with this for the time being? Okay. They are demonstrably happening mostly because we're sinners, right? But at least partly because we've experienced nearly a half century of teaching ethics and right and wrong without any kind of foundation. It's just as useless as teaching reading without the alphabet or teaching geometry without teaching algebra one first or building a house from the top down. 
Building a house without a foundation, it's doomed to fall under pressure. In John 17, when Jesus was praying for his disciples, he knew that they would be challenged in their faith. So he prayed for strength. He prayed for protection. And he knew that with them staying in the world while he ascended into heaven after his death and resurrection, they'd need to be equipped. They'd need to be changed into his image and thus strengthened for this huge task that was before them. Now the task was twofold and it was interconnected. He knew that they would need to be strengthened first to live their lives of faith and holiness without compromise. He also knew that secondly, they needed to be strengthened to go into all the world the gospel. So in his longest recorded prayer in John chapter 17, Jesus prayed many things specifically for his disciples, but also by extension for us. You want to take note of the remainder of Jesus' prayer. We won't read that now, but you can do that later in John 17 in the verses that follow the passage that we will read here. But we'll begin reading a few verses earlier. Jesus in verse 14, says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into and for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. So let's look at the two key words in this passage this morning. Word and truth. Word is used twice in this passage. In verse 14, Jesus said that he has given the disciples God's word. And the result is that the world hated them. We're seeing that more and more as we believers insist that there really is such a thing as absolute truth. And the unfortunate reality that what people want to do is a rejection of those absolute truths. Live your own truth versus things like the unborn is a person worthy of life or homosexual behavior is sinful or God created us male and female. Holding fast to just these three absolute truths is enough to make a growing number of people in the world hate us, let alone some of the other truths of our faith, which admittedly are hard. We're all sinners. Jesus is the only way to heaven, right? In verse 17, Jesus is significant about God's word. I think I'm going to give up here, Jerry, and go to the podium mic. He says, your word is truth. And then truth is also used two other times, okay? We see the first time in verse 17 where Jesus asks the Father to sanctify them, the disciples, and again, by extension, us, in the truth. This is followed by a very clear connection between truth and his word when almost as if he anticipated the question Pilate would soon ask him, what is truth? Jesus said in prayer to God the Father here, your word is truth. And then finally in verse 19, Jesus prays, and for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Now imagine for a minute Jesus' disciples hearing this prayer, 
He's praying for protection. You can imagine them all kind of huddled, maybe with their eyes closed. I don't know if closing your eyes was a thing back in the day when they were praying. They might have opened their eyes during that part of the prayer and maybe looked at each other, praying for protection. Now, what's that all about? Then in verse 14, Jesus prays that he has given them God's word and that the world hates them. Now, you'd think that by now the disciples would have understood some of this stuff, but it's clear from what's happening later that many were still sort of clueless, as, you know, admittedly we often are too, right? Why would the world hate them? Why does the world hate us? Because we have his word. Because we proclaim that it's truly, no pun intended, the word of God. We say that it's what we trust in. We say that it's the foundation for the way we live. We say it does contain God's words of eternal life. It does give us patterns of right and wrong. That's just it. When we say the word of God is true, when we declare that certain things in God's word are not just right for us, but right and proper for everyone, everywhere, and for all time, the world hates us. They don't like hearing that. It gets in the way of their you do you and live their own truth. One commentary on this passage noted that the disciples were in danger because the satanic world system hated them. It hated them because they are not a part of it. As believers share Jesus Christ, everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does, we see in 1 John 2, loses its attractiveness. A believer's commitment shows the world's values to be trash or dung. Therefore, the world hates the exposure of its sham values. And then we read in John chapter 3, verse 20, Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. So this part of Jesus' prayer served not only to ask the Father for protection from the hate of the world, but as a warning of the reality to come, to say that there is absolute truth, to say that some things are absolutely right or absolutely wrong for anyone, anytime, everywhere goes against the relativism that's rampant in our culture and in our world. Of course, our culture is very selective also about what's absolutely true and what's not. But to say there's right and say there's wrong and then to add to that that these things are right and wrong because some religious book says so makes the offense even worse. Recognizing these things Knowing the results, Jesus saw the need to pray, to pray for his disciples, to pray for us, for the strength and protection, and specifically to pray that they'd be sanctified, that is, set apart, changed from unholy to holy, made more and more into the image and likeness of Jesus. But how would this happen? They'd be sanctified in the truth, they'd be sanctified by the truth. And to leave no doubt about what the truth was, he noted immediately that God's word is truth. Truth is a huge theme in the book of John. If you want to study, want to do a study on truth, the book of John is a great place to start. But let me highlight a few things related to our topic this morning. In John chapter 1, verse 1, we read, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. 
Then later in the same chapter, verse 14 clearly identifies Jesus as that word, the living word. Jesus, the word became flesh in John 1.14 and made his dwelling among us. That's Jesus. The word became flesh. Remember what verse 1 says, the word was God. But then John goes a little bit further still in verse 14 and identifies Jesus as the embodiment of two things. John says, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is full of grace. Jesus is full of truth. Then in one of Jesus' most significant statements about himself in John 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So John declared this truth about Jesus in chapter 1. Then Jesus declared it about himself in chapter 14. And they tied it all together in the passage we're looking at this morning in John chapter 17. So note the progression here. First we see Jesus is the Word. Then we see Jesus is the truth. And then we see that the Word is truth. What's the common denominator there? Jesus and truth. The same Word of God we're talking about here is the one that we have the privilege of reading and studying and knowing. It's the same word of God for which heroes of the faith have died to bring us translations in languages that we can understand. It's the same word that Rebecca from Nigeria, remember that video we saw last week? Her husband was killed, her children were killed except for one of them, but she found this Bible and she snatched it from the rubble of the fire because it was so precious to her. That word of God reveals God's truth to us. Jesus said it in his prayer to the Father. He said, your word is truth. Now, as believers, we recognize, we understand this reality, though admittedly, if we're honest, we sometimes take it lightly or we take it for granted. But though we know that God's word is truth, because we live in a culture that's dominated by relativism, which in its worst form is really anti-truth, we have to be on guard for ourselves, that we don't get sucked into relativistic thinking because it's what we swim in, in areas the word of God clearly identifies as right and wrong. The impact on our culture, on our society, is very clear. I've often heard this metaphor. I didn't think of this, but it it makes good sense in this this type of conversation. When you think about being lost in the woods Mm -hmm. at night and it's cloudy sky, so you can't see any stars, you have no point of reference to know where you are. And what do you need in that circumstance? You need a compass to be able to to be a reference point to point you where you need to go. But if your own heart, your own feelings is your compass, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, you might land toward where you're supposed to go, but chances are you're going to end up somewhere completely different. Actually, there's more to this metaphor than you realize because you cannot orienteer with a compass. You have to have a map with the compass. There you go. And then you orient the map to the land, and then you use your compass to navigate the land in virtue of the characterization of the land that you see on the map. And if the map's not accurate, even if you got a compass, you're not going to end up in the right place. And so there is this valuable thing, this compass that we have, uh, if we're talking about morality, it's this sense of right and wrong 
but also we need to have a standard to help us use that compass. Now, we understand, and this is what I was referring to a few moments ago, uh, Lisa, that, that being made in the image of God gives us a, an internal compass of sorts. And so this is why we're talking in terms of right and wrong. Francis Schaeffer called this moral motions. We have the capability of acting or talking in ways that em embraces the notion of morality, but we have more than that. Um, we, have, we have a map, the Word of God, to give us more detail about the. We might have a sense of north and south, and, and I think there's a river over there that reads the and there's the sun. I, th I think it's over that way. And so kind of using uh, you know, a dead reckoning kind of mm -hmm. manner, you can get out of the woods to the river and maybe to the city and get out. Mm -hmm. But, of course, if you have a precise characterization of the land, you can go past it. And so scripture talks about our ability to operate in these categories and have some common sense notions of right or wrong. Mm -hmm. But uh, a lot of times they go south on us, especially when our feelings our hearts, the way we use the term heart, Bible uses the term a little different way, but we mean our emotions if, and our desires and our appetites. Mm -hmm. A lot of times the heart that we talk about isn't just our feelings, it's just our base appetites, mm -hmm. especially sexual, mm -hmm. okay? And so this is why a whole bunch of people, their identity is centered on their sexual appetite. That's right. what it is. That's where that's the where we that's where we found yeah. as a culture. And, I, and I'm not disparaging those people, but I'm just making an observation. Okay. And when you think of it that way, yeah, their identity is centered on their sexual appetite or any other appetite. Mm -hmm. Well, that sounds a little bit weird. But in any event, when our appetites overwhelm what probably is our moral common sense, you know, we ain't lost in the woods here to go back to our metaphor. Mm -hmm. Because now something else is guiding us that, that in many cases is not tied to human flourishing reality, mm -hmm. which is what God wants, what God tells us about. But now it's tied to our personal self-desire or appetites. And I won't even say fleshly appetites because that has a negative connotation. I don't mean it necessarily in the fallen sense. I mean it just in our carnal or physical appetites, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. and, and and then this is very easy to take us off a sound course, mm -hmm. all right, and then we do everything we can to find rationales or language or even abuse of, det de, uh, of detractors to justify where we're at and to appear to sanitize what we're doing when all we are doing is pursuing naked self-interest, mm -hmm. okay? Naked self-interest, narcissism, that's what we see. We've seen moral responsibility comes from being sanctified, set apart, changed by the truth. And truth is the word of God revealed in the scriptures and embodied in the living word. He's the one who said clearly about himself, I am the truth, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The only way I know to guard against moral relativism is to know the Word of God and the one it points to, to know Jesus, the living Word, and to know and understand His written Word, His revelation about Himself to us. 
It's the standard. It's the foundation of our ethics. It's the foundation of our morals. It's the standard for our behavior. And if it isn't the standard for our lives, then our culture is not the only thing being torn apart by relativism. There is such a thing as absolute truth. It's Jesus, absolutely. And the written revelation of Jesus, the word of God. Now we can choose to believe Jesus' description of himself as the truth or not, but if we trust it, and it's not a blind faith, but it's having examined all the evidence, in other words, we counted the M&Ms, we saw the number written down, we need to be shaped and formed by what his word says. As I've studied the deconstruction movement, I've made observations that it really reflects everything you're talking about. It's ultimately at the bottom of the thing is a rejection of absolute truth. And I've had people come into the comments on my blog post and articulate it to where they're saying, hey, no, we're not, a, we're not rejecting the idea that objective truth exists, okay? Maybe it does. But what they're rejecting is the idea that anybody can actually know what it is when it comes to things like religion and especially mm-hmm. morality, like moral right, right. obligations. And so it seems to me what, what emerges, uh, as I think about postmodernism, which I think has really influenced the deconstruction movement quite a bit through some postmodern philosophies coming from the 60s, uh, but it, it's all about authority for what you think is true. Is your, mm-hmm. is your authority the Bible or is your authority sure. the, yourself? And ultimately, every deconstruction story that I've listened to, uh, everything that I've read from deconstructionists, although they may not put it in words just like this, but my observation is that what it really comes down to is that deconstruction as a phenomenon, as we see it, is really a rejection of objective truth. Mm-hmm. And it's marked by... <laughs> A, a real hyper-skepticism mm-hmm. toward any sort of truth claims in the realm of religion and morality. Mm-hmm. So in what I've observed is, if you, you know, I'm going to try to put myself in the mindset. Sure, you know, if, yeah. I, if I think that objective truth cannot be known about morality, about spirituality, then when Christians come along and start making all these objective truth claims, like Jesus is the only way to God, Hell is a real place. Mm -hmm. You must be saved. You are a sinner. I mean, these are difficult truth claims, right? Mm -hmm. But if my core fundamental belief is that objective truth on those topics can't actually be known, then I'm going to be extremely suspicious of the Christians coming around claiming to know what those truths are. The irony, though, about that is they are not neutral regarding these ideas. Right. Whether they are theological, strictly theological, like hell, for example, um, or they are moral, they are not neutral about these things because they make moral assessments all the time and they make theological ones. No, there is no hell. You think there's a hell? There isn't. Right. I mean, and they will say that they will declare that as an absolute truth on TikTok. But it's also, but it's also tied to a moral claim Mm -hmm. because they think if you know if there is a God and maybe some progressive Christians, I don't know, but I I suspect they're theistic very broadly and and very, uh, yeah, in a very general sense. But if he he is good and he's loving, and so he would not create a place like hell. Well, notice that you're making a moral claim there. Mm-hmm. You're, you're talking about the moral quality of God. So you're saying you do seem to know something mm-hmm. religious, and you do seem to know something moral, mm-hmm. all right? So uh, let's, let's, let's stop this little 
game that we're playing about you can't know religious truth, you can't know moral truth, because you keep proclaiming both of them in our excuse me, in our discussion. So the real question is, um, does anybody have a right claim to the claim? In other words, do they have yeah. justification for holding what they do? How many of you have heard the phrase she used several times there, deconstruction? You know what we're talking about there? Okay. For those of you who haven't, we're talking about people who were raised in the church, made a claim to faith at one point or another, and now are deconstructing their faith. And she's talking about the rejection of absolute truth and the part that that plays in deconstruction. Now think about this. We remember Pontius Pilate, right? And we see in Mark 15 and the other Gospels that Pilate was conflicted about what to do with Jesus. You remember that? Because he, he really didn't think Jesus was worthy of crucifixion. But then in verse 15 of Mark chapter 15, we read, So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Focus on that phrase, wishing to satisfy the crowd. That's where a lot of us are right now. We have to face the reality that sometimes we bow to the claim that there is no absolute truth on certain issues because we wish to satisfy the crowd. My brothers and sisters, we have an audience of one. The Lord is the only one we should be concerned about pleasing, especially in this cultural moment where everything is relative, you live your own truth, you do you. Sometimes we have to admit it doesn't matter what we say or how we say it, but we're not going to persuade some people of these absolute truth claims. The most important place for us to start is to be faithful, to stand firm in our faith. Pilate wishing to please the crowd. I never want to be on Pilate's side wishing to please the crowd. That doesn't mean we need to be obnoxious, but wishing to please the crowd. Think about that. Is it true because we believe it? Or do we believe it because it's true? If we believe it because it's true, it's like the M&Ms. It's knowable, it's discoverable, it's real and objective truth. Absolutely.